Ebenezer Scrooge thinks he's going crazy, right? He, he thinks, surely that didn't just happen. And so he lays his head back down on the pillow, and he falls asleep only to be awakened later by the ghost of Christmas past. Now, the ghost of Christmas past basically seeks to drive this nail deeper and deeper into the heart of Ebenezer Scrooge, and he basically takes Ebenezer Scrooge back to his childhood. And what you find out as the ghost of uh, Christmas past reveals his childhood, you find out that uh, his mother died in childbirth when giving birth to Ebenezer Scrooge, and his father was this cold and unloving man who sent him off to a boarding school. And so Ebenezer Scrooge grew up unloved, right, without the security of knowing that a father loved him and was proud of him. It jumps on a little bit further to a Christmas party. And at this Christmas party, now Ebenezer Scrooge is a young adult. And uh, he meets a woman. Her name is Belle. And he falls in love with Belle, right? And, and he proposes to her. He asks her to marry him. And she says yes. But then, just a few months later, she breaks off the engagement with Ebenezer Scrooge because she realizes that he loves money, he loves wealth, more than he loves her. And the scene of the ghost of Christmas past ends with her now in a loving marriage with a man who cherishes her and who loves her deeply. Ebenezer Scrooge is uh, is touched just a little at the end of that scene. The next scene is the scene of Christmas present where the ghost of Christmas present comes in. And he shows basically Ebenezer Scrooge all of these different homes in London. They're celebrating Christmas together with their children. There's joy, there's happiness, there's peace, there's wholeness and goodness. And what you can see is little by little, Ebenezer Scrooge's heart is beginning to melt just in the slightest, but he's hiding it behind this tough exterior until finally they go to the home of Bob Cratchit, where we're introduced to Tiny Tim, right? So you guys remember Tiny Tim is this um, crippled and unhealthy little boy uh, of Bob Cratchit, and the ghost shows him this scene um, of uh, Bob Cratchit's family celebrating Christmas together, and when Ebenezer Scrooge's eyes fall on Tiny Tim, you again see his heart warm just a little, and he becomes concerned for the boy, and even more concerned when the ghost of Christmas present said, if something doesn't happen soon, Tiny Tim won't live throughout the year, and all of a sudden Ebenezer Scrooge is softer and softer still. Again, he, uh, he sort of goes back to sleep, and again, he's sort of trying to convince himself that all of this is just a dream, that he's had some bad food, and it's sort of making him go crazy. He falls back asleep only to be awakened by the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And the ghost of Christmas yet to come, or the ghost of future, takes Ebenezer Scrooge, and he takes him, uh, and he shows them the home of Bob Cratchit. And again, it's Christmas Eve, this time a year later. And this time, in the room, the family is celebrating, but there's a little bit less joy. There's a little bit less happiness because Tiny Tim has passed away, and Ebenezer Scrooge begins to break. The ghost then takes him from the home of Bob Cratchit to a, to a funeral service out next to a graveyard and doesn't tell him whose funeral service it is, but the ghost takes him around to these various you know, groups of a, a scant number of people that are at the funeral, and each one of the people are talking about how they're kind of glad this guy's finally gone and making jokes about how there's probably not going to be any food afterwards because the guy was so cheap. And then the ghost of Christmas uh, future takes Ebenezer Scrooge to a headstone where he sees his name written across the head of that gravestone, and Ebenezer Scrooge begins to weep, and he asks for forgiveness of his love or disordered love of wealth that has ruined everything. Does that make sense? It's really actually a super insightful novel by Charles Dickens. And part of the point that he's making there and part of the point I want to be making even in telling this story is to say this. 
like every other disordered love, disordered love of family, disordered love of romance, disordered love of power or control or whatever it is, all those good things, but like every other disordered love, disordered love of money or wealth will ultimately fail you, right? It will leave you more miserable. It will leave you more alone. It will ultimately make you less human, right? That's what all idolatry does. That's what all disordered love does. It enslaves you, right? Listen to this quote by Nietzsche. So this was in a book called The Dawn of Day from 1887. By the way, Nietzsche's uh, father, I think, was a Lutheran pastor. So he had a a level of um, understanding of who God uh, was purported to be in religion. And he says this. He says, take God out of culture and then what induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire after having insured it for far more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper classes indulge in legalized fraud? What gives rise to all of this, he says? He says it's not real want, right? For their existence is by no means precarious. In other words, they've got plenty of money. They're getting by just fine. But they are urged on day and night by a terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money, for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and a good conscience. Part of what he's saying is that when you take God out of the equation and you, you're going to turn to something to fill this, this transcendent and infinite void within you. Uh, Ernest Becker two weeks ago said that it's very common to make that a love partner. But here, what Nietzsche is saying is it's also very common to do that with money because money gives us power, right? Because money gives us comfort, because money gives us a good conscience. It gives us what we think it gives us anyway is freedom. Dostoevsky, if you guys are familiar with the brothers Karamazov, says this. He says this, the world says you have needs, satisfy them. You have as much right as the rich and the mighty. Don't hesitate to satisfy your needs. Indeed, expand your needs and demand more. This is the worldly doctrine of today. It is kind of the worldly doctrine of today. Interestingly enough, he's writing over 100 years ago. And they believe that this is freedom. The result, again, of this love of money, the result of this greed for the rich is isolation and suicide. For the poor, it's envy and murder. Part of what Dostoevsky is saying here in the Brothers of Karamazov is he's saying that this disordered love of wealth, it's, it's just as damaging and just as present for poor people as it is for wealthy people. He says for the wealthy people that a disordered love of wealth actually isolates you more right? It makes you more lonely. It cuts you off more from people. And not only that, once you have it, you realize it doesn't bring happiness at all, and so it leads to suicide. For the poor, they say, he says, it leads to envy. Envy is not just jealousy, it's jealousy plus. And so envy is where you say, if I can't have it, I don't want them to have it either. And so that's one of the temptations for the poor, right? Or for or maybe the, the middle class in America, or maybe the lower class. But it even leads to murder, he said. And so again, the point in these quotes and the point in Scripture is to say that this disordered love of wealth not only destroys the wealthy, but the poor as well. And then what's interesting is that Keller, uh, in this book, Counterfeit Gods, that I've been using as the basis for a lot of this, points out in this next quote that all of this disordered love or all of these idols, not only do they destroy us and make us less human, but they also enslave us. They also isolate us and they leave us empty. Listen to what Keller says on page 56 and 57 of counterfeit gods. He says this, idolatry or this love um, of wealth also makes us servants of money. I've a good buddy in Atlanta who's a pastor and he says, all of our uh, counterfeit gods, those good things that we turn into the best things where we make the ultimate things, 
Those counterfeit gods will disciple us, is what he says. I love the way he talks about that. You'll be discipled by them, right? So Keller says, they'll make us servants of money, just as we serve earthly kings and magistrates, and so we sell our souls to our idols because we look to them for our significance, that is love, and security, trust. We have to have them, and therefore we are driven to serve and essentially to obey them. While Jesus says that we serve money, he uses a word that means solemn, covenantal service rendered to a king. If you live for money or your uh, relationship, or if you live for your family, or if you live for your job, or if you live for control and power, then you are a slave, right? What's interesting is our culture, right, right now, 2016 in America, the thing we value more than anything else is freedom, It's our number one value. I want the freedom to be who I want to be, to do what I want to do, to have what I want to have. And what Keller says here, and he's actually talking about what Romans says as well, is that ultimately when you create an idol or you have a disordered love of any good thing, that that good thing will enslave you. It will give you the exact opposite of what you hope it will give. Victor Hugo in Les Mis says this, genuflection or bowing down before the idol of the dollar destroys the muscles which walk and the will that moves. In other words, what he realized in writing Les Mis, again, is that the love of money actually makes us less human. John Foreman, uh, lead singer for Switchfoot, says this, greed, envy, sloth, pride, and gluttony. These are not vices anymore. No, they're marketing tools. Lust is our way of life. Envy is just a nudge towards another sale. Even in our relationships, we consume each other, each of us looking for what we can get out of the other. Our appetites are often satisfied at the expense of those around us. That's not love, by the way. In a dog-eat-dog world, we lose part of our humanity, right? So again, I'm trying to drive home the point that a disordered love of X, Y, Z, or money, it, it does exactly the opposite of what you hope it to do, of what you want it to do. As always, these idols, these disordered loves, the idol of wealth too, these idols make us less human, right? They enslave us. They addict us. They will leave us miserable. They will leave us alone, right? Now, here's what's interesting. You guys in the, this room, chances are many of you are kind of going, that's all fine and well, but I don't really struggle with a disordered love of money. And you're, you're in your head, you're kind of going, you should see my car, right? Or, uh, you know, or you, you, know, you should see my summer job. I'm going to be working at a camp this summer. I don't have a disordered love of money. But I'm going to beg to differ and just ask you to bear with me for a moment. I want you to listen to a story that Jesus had to tell in Mark chapter 10. So some of you know this story as, as the story of the rich young ruler, but it's a rich young guy at least. And Jesus begins by telling the story in verse 17. Again, just so you know where the story falls, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross, right? He's on his way. And this young guy comes up to him, says this. Verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, first mistake, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Second mistake. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boar. In other words, he's saying, check done it, mission accomplished. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Just love that picture. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come 
follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus then looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, right? It's a great story. And, and I tell you, the story in here is, uh, is an incredibly applicable for us today for any number of different reasons. But one of the things I have to let you know really quickly is that Jesus talked about three things a lot, right? He talked about hell. He talked about this idea of the kingdom of God, which ultimately uh, is where all the broken stuff that sin introduced is made whole. And it's a world where Jesus rules and reigns and everything is the way it's supposed to be. But he also talked about money because he knew that it was an insidious and very tempting God for us, right? That's why he's talking about this. So let me, let me call time out here for a second and, and say this. We've been using um, the Heidelberg Catechism for the last few months to help us navigate and read Scripture. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written, again, several hundred years ago, but it teaches us to read a passage of Scripture and say, okay, so what sin and misery or what brokenness do I see in this passage, particularly as it applies to me? And so I'm going to answer that by two ways in this passage. First is the first area of brokenness for us is that we're often blind to our disordered love of wealth. We're often blind to our disordered love of wealth. Okay, let me read verses 21 and 22. So Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now let me just call time out and paint the picture. So again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die on the cross, right? But there are throngs of people that are following him. He's in this town. And again, there are just people everywhere. And so in the midst of all of these, this, these people, in the midst of this crowd is what verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1 says, in the midst of this crowd, this young man runs up to Jesus, right? He runs up to Jesus in the middle of all. You can see him sort of making his way through the crowd. He runs up to Jesus. He falls on his knees. It sounds a lot like the leper in Luke chapter 5, but he falls on his knees in the presence of a crowd. He's clearly passionate, right? He's clearly earnest. He's clearly religious, right? And he clearly wants to knew, know what has to be done in order to inherit eternal life. I mean, he's, he's good, he's moral, he's religious, he's passionate, he's sincere, he's all these things, and he's totally blind to the fact that he has a disordered love of wealth. He's blind to it. And I would argue that many of us are blind to our disordered love of wealth, too. It's sneaky and it's insidious, right? Here's, again, what Keller says uh, in Counterfeit Gods. And so uh, I'll read this very quickly. He says this, some years ago, I was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet that the week you deal with greed, you'll have the lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and wrath and even pride, but nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money god's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. And so as we've been going through the series, 
when we did sort of disordered love of family, I guarantee you that there were people out there like, yep, I got that, right? Seven to ten on a scale. I'm a, I'm a seven, seven to ten scale. I'm there. You know, I, I, I get it. Yeah, you know, I love my kids. I love my wife. I love all these things. And that functionally becomes God for me so often, right? Some of you really resonated with that. Some of you totally resonated with the idea of, uh, of sort of a romantic love interest being the thing that gives you your security, your identity, your strength, your meaning, right? Some of you totally resonated with that. And if family was a 7 out of 10, romance was a 10 out of 10, right? And then this morning, as I was sort of introducing this idea of disordered love of wealth, you're going, one, right? It's a one for me. Or I go to Barry, right? I'm going to be a teacher, you know, or, uh, or whatever. I go to Shorter. I'm going to go be a worship leader somewhere. Like, love of money is not me, right? Let me just say this really quickly. Be careful, because what Jesus is saying here, what Keller is saying here, what Augustine is saying here, what Romans is saying here, is that we are blind, in particular, to this idolatry of wealth. Because wealth, what wealth provides for us is ultimately something that's deeper, right? What we're really looking for in wealth is usually either power, which is not a bad thing, or control, which is not a bad thing, or security, which is not a bad thing. But when we look at money to give us those things instead of God, then it's a disordered love. It becomes an idol. I led a discipleship group now years ago, and we talked about this, this disordered love of wealth. And in the group of guys, there were probably eight of us, it was interesting because everybody in the group was, was um, sort of socioeconomically very conservative. We were big savers, not spenders. And as we went around the group and talked about it, we all said the same thing, like, functionally, I'm trusting in my IRA or my 403B, or I'm trusting in my savings account to keep me safe, to give me security, right, to make sure I'm okay. So it wasn't that everybody wanted to buy a yacht, right, or to buy, you know, really expensive bottles of wine. They were looking to that money, myself included, for safety and for security. Such a good thing, but when we make it the best thing, then we're breaking the first commandment, and ultimately our lives will end up disordered. We're blind to our disordered love of wealth. So just consider the possibility that that might be you. Just consider it. The second area of sin and misery that we see is that disordered love of earthly wealth is actually a barrier to true satisfaction in life. So disordered love of earthly wealth is actually a barrier to the very thing you want, which is satisfaction in life. Look again at verses 21 to 22. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Again, he's looking at this guy who, who says no, not willing to give that up. Jesus looks at him and loves him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, right? You, you can have eternal satisfaction. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Here's what's interesting here. Jesus invites the man into a relationship with him that would have changed his life. Right? It would have been the most important thing in the world to him. Eleven of the twelve disciples did that very thing. They followed Jesus all the way to the cross. They watched him die on the cross. Right? They went back and they said, what just happened? Then they witnessed as Jesus rose from the dead. And they said, this is the most satisfying thing the world has to offer. Right? That's what John 17.3 says. So John is one of those, those people who experienced Jesus, went to the cross. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, that's true satisfaction. They saw his sacrifice. They experienced the resurrection. They realized that he was the most valuable thing the world had to offer. That the greatest satisfaction was God. This rich young ruler, however, his face fell, and he went 
away sad. He had morality, he had influence, he had wealth, and his face fell, and he was sad, right? His wealth was ultimately a barrier to true satisfaction. In an article called Money Can't Buy Happiness in the New York Post, written by Maureen Callahan, she tells a story about a designer named Loren Scott. I'm just going to read through this uh, section. Uh, But she shocked New York City, this place that she lived, um, by committing suicide at 49 years of age. So here's, here's the article. It says this. To look at her carefully curated Instagram feed, Loren Scott was a one percenter, a gold-plated member of the international elite. There she was on vacation in India with her boyfriend, Mitch Jagger. At his retreat on the island of Mystique, that sounds kind of funny to me, sounds like a wrestler, female wrestler, (laughs) about to board a chartered helicopter, lounging poolside in gold jewelry and designer sunglasses, stretched out on a private plane using her $5,000 Louis Vuitton handbag as a footrest. I always say luxury is a state of mind, Scott told a reporter, because for me, it really is. It's legroom. It's a beautiful view. It's great food at a great restaurant you've discovered because you obsessively read Zagat, as I do. And then on Monday, March 19th, 2014, she committed suicide, hanging herself in her $5.6 million Chelsea apartment. Philip Block, a stylist for celebrities, said, ironically, just last week I said to three different people, I wish I had her life. Look at her life. She was always somewhere fabulous and fancy. You think, here's somebody who has it all. You just never know. The article concludes, while the chasm between Scott's marketed life and her actual life came as a shock, she was just one of the countless New Yorkers who secretly fake their fabulous lives, right? Money cannot buy you happiness. In fact, it might be a barrier to true satisfaction. Many of us in this room, not myself, but many of us in this room, as we drive down Turner McCall and you see that sign for the lottery that says 300 and something million dollars, for just a moment you think, if I had 300 and whatever million dollars, I'd be happy. Or at least I'd be real close, right? I mean, I think, if it were me, I think I would work Sunday through Thursday and then I would pile my family on our private jet on Thursday afternoon. We would fly to my house in the Florida Keys where I would spend the week flats fishing. Or not the week, but the weekend flats fishing. We'd fly back on Saturday night. I would preach again on Sunday. And then, you know, in other times of the year, we'd be going to, you know, up to Whistler or wherever else, right? I'd start dreaming about all these things, thinking that if I had this much money, I'd truly be satisfied. I'd truly be happy. But not only does the Bible challenge that, right? Not only does Augustine challenge that. But even the story of Lorenz Scott challenges that. Sociology, psychology challenge that, right? Satisfaction is always about your internal reality, not your external reality, right? How many of us think we'd be truly satisfied if only we had X? Something is clearly wrong. Something is clearly out of order, right? Just as out of order. Now, the second thing that the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us to ask as we read a passage of Scripture is, okay, you've shown me some sin and misery. What grace is offered to us in this Scripture? What grace is offered to us? And here we see any number of different things. I'm going to focus on two. First of all, one of the graces we see in this passage is that Jesus loves us enough to show us our disordered love. Jesus loves us enough, cares for us enough, to show us our disordered love. Verses 18 and 21 They say this, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Of course, the guy says, me too. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have 
and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. A couple things really quickly. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy, right? And so Jesus, had he not loved this man, wouldn't have cared about him, right? We tell our kids all the time, the reason we're disciplining you is because we love you, right? We, we want you to grow up to be healthy, right? We want you to grow up to be um, independent, healthy adults and followers of Jesus. It's the whole reason we're doing this. We, we promise we're not doing it because we don't like you. We're showing you your brokenness because we do love you, right? So uh, one of the people who I um, was privileged to get to know uh, in my life is a man named Frank Brock. And uh, Frank Brock was the, coven, the president of Covenant College for about 14 years. Uh, he then went to work for the Covenant College Foundation. And I had a conversation with Frank now probably two years ago. I was up in Chattanooga. And he was describing to me part of what he did. He said, you know, what I do now as uh, the, the foundation president um, is I go to very, very wealthy people. And he said, I try to get them to be involved in estate planning. And he told me, he said, you know, what's interesting about me visiting with all of these super wealthy people and trying to get them to to sort of plan out their estate, plan out for when they die, he said, what's interesting is all of these people have lived very intentional lives. It's part of the reason they're very wealthy. They've been very disciplined. They've looked forward to the future and they've planned for it. And he said, but almost every single time when I go to talk to these very wealthy people about planning for when they die, he said, they don't even want to talk about it. Right? They're scared to death to talk about it. It's, it's too frightening for them. And so they ignore it. And so part of what Frank said is part of my job is to care for them enough and love them enough to be able to help them to think about this really painful thing. It's really what Jesus is doing here. He's loving this man enough. He's caring for him enough to say, this is actually a problem. And maybe even better, what Jesus is doing is he's not saying it's a problem. He's letting this man experience the fact that he has this idolatry, that it is a problem. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 say this, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. Thank you. Part of what Jesus is doing is Jesus is being a friend to this man and he's showing him that he's got cancer that he can't see and he can't feel, but it's real real, and it's ultimately gonna kill him if, it do, if he doesn't deal with it. And I can absolutely promise you this rich young man was not excited about having his idolatry exposed and neither are we. But Jesus loves us enough to show us our disordered love precisely because he does love us, precisely because he does care for us. He is a true friend, right? That grace is offered to us. The second grace that is offered to us that we see in this passage is very, very simple, but it needs to be said every single time I preach to you guys, and it's this. We're reminded in this passage that Jesus loves us, right? We're reminded in this passage that Jesus loves us. Look at verse 20 and 21. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at you and loves you. Jesus could have been disgusted with this man, right? He could have been like, oh, man, another one. You know, he could have been disgusted with him, right? Jesus could have reprimanded him. Right? He could have gotten on to him publicly and sort of shamed him and pointed out his foolishness. Right? Jesus could have been angry with his decision. Right? He could have done all of those things. He, Jesus could have looked with, at him with contempt. Right? Jesus could have looked down upon him. Right? He could have looked upon him and said, ugh, and just been disgusted, contemptuous. But Jesus didn't. He looked at him and he loved him. Some of you here in this room today, all of you in this room here today, need to hear this truth. What you need more than anything else is to see Jesus smile upon you. 
to know that God so loved the world, right? That's this wonderful grace. This guy rejected Jesus. He said no. He chose something else, and Jesus looked at him and loved him, and Jesus loves you too. The Heidelberg Catechism doesn't leave us here, but it tells us to answer this next question, how do we respond to this grace? How do we respond to the grace that we see in this passage? I'm going to give three answers uh, that I've, I learned a long time ago, but I heard again this weekend at our men's retreat. There are three potential answers, and I've attached little, little, um, little prayers to each of them. So one of the answers to what we do to this grace, one of the things we need to do is we need to be able to repent. And I just wrote a little prayer up here that you guys can pray silently if you want to. But the prayer says this, God, I admit that I've been trusting in wealth to save me, to protect me, to give me my identity, to give me power, to give me the ability even to rest. I've broken this first commandment by loving money more than I love you. I confess it and I truly desire to change. Some of you in this room this morning have heard this, right? And you've said, yeah, I really do. I really am trusting in wealth to take care of me, and I need to repent of it. Here's your chance. Some of you in the room this morning need to believe, right? You need to believe in particular that, that Jesus is more beautiful than anything else that he has created, right? Some of you need to hear that, that Jesus is more worthy, that he's worth more than anything that he's created, And maybe this prayer is for you. I believe, Father, that you've forgiven me for my disordered love of wealth. I believe that Jesus' sacrifice has forgiven my sin of choosing wealth over you. I believe that Jesus gave up the riches, the wealth of heaven to come to earth that I might have the treasures, the infinite treasures of being a child of God. And I believe that a relationship with you is the greatest good, the greatest satisfaction that I can possibly have. Right? Help me unbelieve. Help me believe. Help me fight against my unbelief. And then finally, some of you this morning need to fight. Some of you need to fight against uh, the, the temptation to not believe that. And this prayer might be for you. Father, I know that your spirit is at work in my heart, not only convicting me of a disordered love of wealth, but your spirit is also at work giving me the will and the energy to fight against that temptation. I will fight to trust in you alone. I will fight to trust in you alone. Those are all really good answers, right? Those are all really good, so what? So what do I do? Repent, believe, fight. Some of you need to pray all of those three things. Maybe, maybe all of us need to pray all of them at some point. What's interesting is those th- three things, are, they're true, and they're very helpful, and I recommend them to you, but interestingly, they aren't how Jesus responded to the disciples, right? When this rich, wealthy, ultra-moral, religiously faithful, passionate, sincere young man walked away, the disciples were distraught, right? Surely thinking, if this guy can't do it, how in the world can we? Jesus' answer, you can't, but God can. You can't do it, but God can do it. Listen to the words of Jesus to his disciples in verses 26 and 27. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? If this really passionate really sincere, really moral, really religious guy, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. You see, you cannot root out your idolatry. You cannot do it, but God can. You cannot save yourself, but God can. Let's take a moment. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for your, um, your care for us. I thank you for your willingness to tell us things that we do not want to hear. Um, and even showing us things that we do not want to see about our own hearts and about our own lives. Father, we are so blind uh, to our brokenness. Father, we are um, so blind to our rebellion. We're so blind to the ways in which we uh, turn our back to you and, um, and hold our palm up to you, rejecting you. Father, we're so blind to all of that. And yet, Father, you desire to have a relationship with us anyway. You look at us and love us. You loved us enough to send your only son, Jesus Christ, not only to reveal to us and to show us our brokenness, but ultimately uh, to live the life that we couldn't live, um, to die a death that you weren't willing for us to die and to rise again, thus canceling our debt to you so that when you look at us, you see Jesus' righteousness. You see that we are forgiven. You see that we are clean. You see us as daughters and sons of God, Father, I pray that our ability to stand before you today would come not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness that you've given us in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.